Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 47th episode of Working with the Word and for joining us in our walk through the Gospel of John. So far, we've seen Jesus introduced as the Word of God who became flesh in chapter 1. And we also saw last week that Jesus' first disciples begin to follow him. Andrew, Simon Peter, possibly John the Apostle himself, Philip, and Nathaniel. And so that sets the stage for today. In chapter 2, we're going to see a couple more firsts in Jesus' life. We're going to see Jesus' first sign by which he makes himself known to the disciples and also his first public act by which he makes himself known to the world. And So we're going to talk about the significance of what Jesus does here in chapter 2 and what we learn about Jesus from this today. But let's start by reading the text. This is John chapter 2 in the Christian Standard Bible. On the third day... A wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. 
While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So as we're looking at John 2 today, this breaks down into two sections we'll be focusing on. Verse 1 through verse 12 is this first sign we see Jesus do in in Cana of Galilee. And then verse 13 through verse 25, we'll focus on Jesus in Jerusalem as he is driving out these money changers and his zeal for his father's house is going to consume him and all of that that's in there. We'll let Emerson talk more about that section in just a moment. So... As we begin with this first section, verse 1 through verse 12, we want to think about our first observations. We've reread the text. We know what's what's listed in here. Emerson, what's something that stands out to you in this first section? I think one of the first things that I notice is that, I mean, obviously this is Jesus's first sign that he does, but the thing that stands out is that it's so, like, obscure. Like, it's not public. It's not Jesus doesn't go around parading himself, and it's not like everybody knows that he has done this. Obviously, his disciples do, mm-hmm. but when the water actually becomes wine, the head waiter thinks that it was it was the groom that did that, and so it's like Jesus doesn't get the credit, and so, you know, that's the first thing that stands out to me is just how discreet Jesus is in doing this. Yeah. I think that when I look at that as well, you know, it's, it's so interesting to see I was going to make this point later, but we can make it now. Just Sometimes I think we get the idea of Jesus was like going around and he was like doing finger guns and lightning was shooting out. And he was, you know, like starting barbecues for people or like, you know, some <laughs> little girl was like, Jesus, my cat's in a tree. And he was like using the power of levitation to bring it back down. And he was just like doing miracles all over the place, just kind of doing whatever. And people were knowing his power. Now, when you read the Gospels, People are obviously aware they're bringing their sick to him because they know that he can heal them. We don't want to make the impression that Jesus isn't compassionate. There are times that Jesus, you know, specifically says because of his compassion or out of his, you know, feeling towards someone and wanting to help them, he does do a miracle or do a sign. But we'll get more into the purpose of signs here in just a second. But it really is interesting to see of all the things that God in the flesh could have done to first show that he was God in the flesh. He takes a liquid and makes it into a different kind of liquid. It's kind of like, oh, we can do something kind of like that, right? Well, we'll talk about that more in a second, too, of just how it's not really something that you and I could could do even. As we think about this section, we want to understand some timeline stuff, first of all. So verse 1 and 2, and then verse 12, we'll get these not out of the way as in they're not important, but there's other things I really want to focus on in here. So let's talk about some of that stuff that's there. So it says in chapter two, verse one, the third day at a wedding took place. So most understand this to be, so three days after the discussion with Philip and Nathaniel in Bethesda, which is also in Galilee, we see Jesus and his mother and his disciples are at this wedding that's in Cana of Galilee. But then in verse 12, you see after the wedding is over, Jesus and his crew, pardon the informality there with that, but you know, that group of people that's with him at this time, his disciples, his mom, they're going down to Capernaum, and that's going to set up what's going to happen in a little bit when we get ready to go to Jerusalem. Not so much as in something big happens, other than just 
Capernaum is a place that's going to get mentioned again in John chapter 4, and then in John chapter 6, and the other Gospels talk about Capernaum some as well, right there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. But at this point, it's not really important what Jesus does there. It's just a transition from he was at Cana at this wedding, but then he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which is another big idea. We see Jesus going to Jerusalem regularly for these Passover feasts, and usually things go interesting for Jesus in those places, especially when it comes to the other religious leaders who are there in that time frame. So the more important stuff, I think, from this section is you think about these first 12 verses. You begin with this section in, in verse 3 when Jesus' mother goes to him and tells him they don't have any wine. And then in verse 5, she obviously has some confidence in the fact that Jesus can do something about this because after Jesus' statement in verse 4, she says, do whatever he tells you. Now, why does she feel this way about him? I don't know. I've got the little like shrug emoji in our notes there because I'm, I'm just not sure. I think some people, if you look at the Apocrypha, there are some texts in there, some apocryphal texts where Jesus does signs as like a boy or as kind of a younger man in that time frame. Some of those signs are very questionable. Like if I mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly, there's one where like a little boy pushes Jesus when he's a boy, and so Jesus strikes that boy dead, which is a miracle, but not really the same kind of miracle when you look at Jesus who is the man who's doing these signs and doing these miracles later. And so I don't know why Jesus' mother thought that he could do something about this, but she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. But verse 4 is really important in the fact that when Jesus' mother says they don't have any wine, he says, what does this have to do with you and me, woman? I think the joke there is the next time your wife asks you to help with laundry, try that phrase and see how that goes. But as Jesus responds to that, it's really the second half. My hour has not yet come. That phrase of Jesus' hour is going to show up again and again. And there will be times where Jesus is going to continue to say, My hour is not yet here. But we'll see later on, Jesus is going to talk about, okay, the hour finally has come. As we're spoiling a little bit, we're talking about, you know, Jesus is making a bigger scene. You mentioned, Emerson, the fact that this is a very somewhat discreet, small, as far as, like, people aware of what Jesus does in this moment. And so this isn't really that big of a sign. But as you continue to go on and on through the gospel, you see more and more public signs. I'm thinking like John 6, John 11, Jesus you know, feeds large crowds of people, Jesus raises a man from the dead, and people all know about it now and are seeing that. At this point, Jesus isn't looking for that attention, but as time will get farther on, he is knowing the fact that it's going to be because of that attention he's drawn and the point that he's making with all of that, that he is the Son of God, that's going to lead to the conflict that's ultimately going to be shown in chapters 18 through chapter 20. So you see the fact that his hour has not yet come, relating into the fact that he does this sign in verse 6 through 10. Water is turned into wine. Verse 9 specifically says, the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine. In the Christian Standard Bible, that's a literal parenthetical statement. Maybe John had that kind of in mind, the fact that it's, it's water, but it has now actually become wine, which... You all remember John 1, verse 3, all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. 
Jesus shows his deity through his power of creation here. Now, maybe transformation is somewhat more of a appropriate word as he's taking a substance and making it into another substance, but I can't take water that I'm drinking right now and turn it into mug root beer. As much as I love mug root beer, I just can't take that. But Jesus takes water, and it stops having the properties of H2O, and it's now the properties of wine. That's miraculous. That is something that only deity, someone who has the power of creation, could do something like that. And so while this seems like kind of a strange way to show that power, Jesus is definitely showing off his power. Now, there's definitely the quality and the quantity of the wine is is neat, too, but the, the main point is the fact that he's showing that he really has that power that only deity could have. And that all leads to verse 11, where Jesus is mentioned there. He did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. Last week, we ended our episode by saying we're going to look at Jesus' first miracle. Not something we should have caught as we were recording, because John never really uses the word miracle. He's always going to use this word sign. This idea of a sign is something that points to or gives direction to something that's important. Watch out, curve ahead, or speed limit, stop. Jesus gives this sign that says water to wine, and you have to look at that and say, well, that's not normal. Normal people can't do stuff like that. And again, it's not just that It tasted like wine. You know, he took some Mio from those commercials we see, and he dropped it and squirted a few of those drops in there and made it taste better. This has completely changed characteristics and quality in all of that. And so the first of his signs here, it's either the first of his signs, period. Some people see this as the first of his signs in Cana. If you go to chapter 4, verse 46 and verse 54, we're going to see that's his second sign that John records also happens in Cana. But John uses this idea of a sign to, again, point to Jesus. And that's really what's being brought out in the latter half of that verse. Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Again, Jesus is not doing miracles all the time just simply out of compassion. Again, I don't want to remove the compassionate, true, caring Jesus that he is from the equation But we want to make the point that Jesus is always doing signs, doing miracles, with the point of, do you see how I'm the Son of God? He's looking to cultivate that belief in people. Now, some people like the disciples will see the signs, and they will believe. Some people like the religious leaders, like the Pharisees, they're going to see the signs, and they're going to get mad, and they're going to reject Jesus based on that. But as Jesus does the signs, there's this unquestionable fact that Jesus is revealing his glory. Remember chapter 1 in verse 14, in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. His disciples know that they are seeing his glory now. And that's what's important that we would hopefully see that as well. This is the first sign that John records, not just for the disciples, but for you and me, that we would believe that Jesus is the son of God and that we would see his glory as well. I think that takes us to uh, John chapter 20. Remember the purpose of, of John writing these things. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written, but these are written that you may believe. And he's, he's talking to us there. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so that's always going to be our go back to point, especially as we'll talk about 
these seven signs that John uses throughout the book. We'll probably regularly go back to chapter 20, 30, and 31 and say, that's great that the disciples believed. That's great that Jesus is showing his power. What do you, listener of this podcast right now, and you who's looking at your Bible and considering and growing in your knowledge of God, what do you do with that information? So like we mentioned, verse 12 of this section, he moves from Cana to Capernaum. But in verse 13, we're going to pick up with Jesus being there for Passover feast in Jerusalem. Emerson, what's going on here in this section? So verse 13 says, The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this is a big deal, of course, in the the Jewish religion, that that the people would celebrate the Passover feast to remember what Jesus had done for them uh, historically coming out of Egypt. And so this is not this is not just Jesus going by himself. He's going with a crowd. And so as the crowds are kind of filing into Jerusalem, Jesus appears on the scene. And this is really the first time you see Jesus make himself known publicly. And the first thing he does is he drives out the money changers and those that are selling sheep and doves. And I mean, he makes this very public statement about who he is. And before we before we get into that, let's talk about our first observations here. What, what's the first thing that stands out to you? The first thing that stands out to me is the after-the-fact knowledge that John is recording in his gospel. John's not really concerned necessarily with like hiding all of the details until he gets to the very end, right? Because you see there in verse 22 that when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said all of this stuff about the temple he's going to say in just a moment. And I think that that's important. It is not so much of John's telling a story as if you were reading a novel and he's, you know, it's a mystery thriller and he's, you know, intentionally hiding details. John is giving you information even along the way saying this is the big reveal because John really wants you to believe in that reveal. That's, it's not the point of that you're shocked necessarily at that point, but at that point you're like, I get it. And I have that Nathaniel of, you are the king of Israel. I have that Thomas moment, my Lord and my God, that I have that moment, and just as his disciples did later on as well. What do you notice from this section, Emerson? The, the first thing that stands out to me is kind of a contrast with the, the miracle that he just did, which was kind of private in, in a way. This is like the exact opposite of that. Jesus yeah. is coming, and he's making himself known to the people there is no doubt that Jesus wants to be known here, right? Yeah. And and the thing about it is what Jesus does publicly, it's not like he's going to be making a lot of friends by doing this. Yeah. This is going to make himself enemies, but he does it anyway. And so and, and that he is kind of a nobody at this point. Not not many people really know who he is yet. Is this the beginning of his ministry? And and there is a question about, is this the, the same you know cleansing account that we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I think there's enough differences that we can say this is actually a different account, that Jesus actually did this two times, once at the beginning and once at the end of his ministry. And so Jesus is basically this nobody from Nazareth. And remember what Nathaniel said about, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth. Yeah. So here's this here's this nobody from Nazareth coming and and acting like he's got some authority to command these people to leave the temple. And I, I think that kind of goes in 
we have to ask the question, you know, what is going on here? Why are there animals and shops in the temple to begin with? So as we mentioned, there's travelers coming to Jerusalem from different parts of, of Palestine. And as these travelers are arriving, they can't necessarily carry their lambs and their oxen in their suitcases to offer sacrifices. So when they get there, they, they purchase these animals to sacrifice. That's what, something that God allowed in the Old Testament. And so there's nothing wrong with this kind of business in and of itself. The problem that Jesus sees in this is the place where it's happening. In, in verse 16, he says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. You know, there's other places where they could sell these sheep and oxen and, and you know, change the money. And it's not, it's not here. <laughs> yeah. The focus has gone from this being a place of worship where people can offer sacrifices thoughtfully and reverently and pray and meditate to just, it's like you're going out, you're going to the temple to shop. <laughs> uh, that's not what the temple was for. Yeah. Just to use a very, not exactly a one-to-one parallel, but this summer, our two oldest kids um, submitted some, some projects to the 4-H fair. And they don't do the livestock thing, but we always every year go to the livestock showing just because it's, it's kind of cool to see the animals. But as you're going through these barns, you know, to see the, the sheep and the pigs and the, the rabbits and the chickens, it's very noisy. It's very stinky. Um, that's not a very good place to worship. Like, I, I'm not sure how to be able to focus on my relationship with God there. And that's kind of the scene here in the temple is it's, it's very noisy. It's very crowded with, with these bleeding sheep and these lowing oxen. It's not the place to do this. And so Jesus does something remarkable. He drives them out. Mm-hmm. So why, why is this so important about what Jesus does? Well, I think there's a couple things going on here. Verse 17, John says that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Are the disciples remembering this in this moment or are they remembering it like after the fact? I think it's probably the first one. You know, as they're seeing this, they remember that the scriptures talked about passion and, and zeal for, for the house. And this is a quotation from, from Psalm 69. So I think the disciples, as they're seeing Jesus's passion, they remember this in the moment. But I think later on, there's a lot more going on. Maybe later on, as they think about that, they realize there's actually more going on. Because Psalm 69 is a very messianic psalm. There's a lot of parallels to, to Jesus and the fact that he is going to suffer. He's making enemies by doing this. We don't have the time to think in, in depth about that, but this, it's a very messianic psalm. And there's something else that is kind of in the background here. Last time we talked about in chapter one, there's this kind of anticipation that the Christ would come. That's why they send Pharisees to, or send the priests to John, are you the Christ? One of the expectations about the Christ comes from Malachi chapter three and verse one. It says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. That, I think, is talking about John the Baptist. But it goes on to say, Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And you see Jesus fulfilling that. The Lord comes suddenly or surprisingly or shockingly into his temple like he owns this place. Mm -hmm. Jesus goes on to say, this is my father's house. 
And so Jesus is asserting himself as the coming Messiah, as this nobody from Nazareth. He really isn't a nobody. This is his father's house. In fact, this is really his house. And so the Jews say, you know, what, what do you think you're doing here? <laughs> what sign will you do that will show us you have authority to do these things? And the most important point, I think, in this section is what Jesus says after that. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they're thinking that he's talking about the brick and mortar, you know, that took 46 years to build. This is a magnificent piece of architecture. And he's saying, you're going to destroy this and I'm going to build it in three days. They're like, no, no, that's not going to happen. But Jesus is talking a very different kind of temple. He's talking about himself, his body. And what he says in that one statement really kind of tells the whole story of the gospel. He says, I am the temple. God is among us. That's what the temple was all about, is God dwelling among his people, his presence being with them. Jesus asserts, I am the temple. God's presence is among you. I have authority, and you're going to destroy that temple. They're going to kill Jesus. Jesus knows that. And then after that, he's going to raise, be raised in three days. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And, and of course, in verse 22, John says when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that, and they believed the scripture and Jesus. So kind of like what you were talking about, Jeff, <laughs> John gives the story away, yeah. right? This is a spoiler. <laughs> if John was like a, a screenwriter for a movie, his producers would probably be saying, let's cut that point out because that gives too much away. But, but John's, he's, he's not keeping this a secret. He wants us to understand the significance of, of what's going to happen. That Jesus has been saying all along that I'm going to be raised from the dead. I am the temple. And that's what sig- is significant about that. Um, and so Jesus identifies himself as God. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to destroy him, but they won't be able to. So that takes us to the very end of the chapter, verses 23 through 25. As as people in Jerusalem see the signs that he is doing, they come to believe in him. But there's an interesting and kind of strange statement in verse 24 that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. What's what's going on here? There's kind of a play on words here because that word that's translated entrust is the same word that's translated in verse 23, believe. So the people believe in Jesus when they see those signs, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. And I think what's going on here is Jesus sees that their faith, although it's a good thing that they believe in him, he sees that their faith is kind of superficial or shallow. And Jesus is going to highlight that in a couple of chapters in chapter 4, when he kind of rebukes the people, you don't, you won't believe unless you see signs, kind of in a rebuking way. And then even more in chapter six, when he feeds the 5,000, and they come back the next day saying, we want more bread, <laughs> hint, hint. Mm-hmm. And Jesus rebukes them for, for not believing in him, just believing in the signs. And so Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows that their faith is shallow. And there's, I think, a lesson for us there does Jesus believe in us? Does does he see the quality of our faith? Absolutely he does. So what is the quality of our faith? Do we do we see Jesus through the signs? It's not enough just to, you know, see the things that Jesus does. 
but do we see who he is? Do we see his glory and his magnitude through those signs? And again, that's John's main point of this gospel, is to get us to not just say, wow, that's neat, but to say, I understand who Jesus is, and I understand why it's so important for me to put my faith, my belief in Jesus, because I know that that's where I'm going to find that eternal life. Somewhat jumping ahead, we'll get more into that next week as we'll talk about Jesus making that statement of those who believe in me will find eternal life. I mean, most famously in John 3.16 in that conversation with Nicodemus, but that's such an important point throughout this book. As we think about the so what from this section today, I mean, we're trying to do more of and just kind of like, well, why does this this matter? I mean, that's a, a big part of it is us believing in Jesus and wanting Jesus to believe in us, knowing that we truly believe in him. We also want to see, though, the fact that Jesus' hour has not yet come, but Jesus is very much active, and he knows that that hour is going to be coming soon. And so for him, it's important to, for us to see what he's doing to prepare for that. Jesus progressively reveals more and more of himself throughout the first half of John, particularly how much he reveals to his apostles up to the moment of his hour that he does come. We want to see that in someone even the latter half as well. We want to see that as his crucifixion and his arrest takes place. And so that takes us to our, our challenge today, which is based upon this idea of the temple and Jesus cleansing the, the physical temple of the things that should not be there. I want us to think about how Jesus gives the temple a new meaning. Here in this chapter, he doesn't talk about the brick and mortar building, but he talks about himself as the temple. The temple is wherever God dwells. And in Jesus's case, Obviously, he was God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, Christians are called God's temple today. It says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And so we want to think about this question, is there something in your life that Jesus wants you to get rid of? Does your, does your temple need cleansing? And of course, in 1 Corinthians 6, the, the real application that, that Paul is making there is to immorality. He says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Are there things that have violated the temple of God and your body that, that God is dwelling among you? And if so, let Jesus cleanse that out of your body because you are, if you're a Christian, the temple of God. It is the Father's house. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. Next time, we'll move into John chapter 3, as we'll focus on Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus, as well as a conversation with John the Baptist, not Jesus and John the Baptist, but a conversation of John the Baptist, and understanding that he is kind of moving out of the scene as Jesus is moving more and more into the picture. As always, we're still continuing to accept passages for our Difficult Passage series. We're very grateful for those who have already sent in suggestions. And we have an upcoming one in here, two or three episodes. We'll talk more about some of that. 
but continue to reach out to us with any difficult passages or other questions or topics or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word. You can reach out to us and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.